Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find their opinions, content, expressed, disturbing, and objectionable. This is Todd Fredericks, the physician. Actually, I'm Dr. Todd Fredericks. I I don't ever talk to tell people I'm a doctor because my mom's called me Todd for 52 years, so I was a Todd before I was a doctor. So I'm Dr. Todd Fredericks, a a family (laughs) physician at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and uh, we have the pleasure of continuing conversation with Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld. Um, And with that, we'll go ahead and give it over to Ms. Sarg. Yeah, uh, welcome everyone to another episode of Rotations. Uh, As Dr. Fredericks mentioned, um, we're joined again with Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld, who, among many other things, including an Emmy nominee, uh, commander in the (laughs) Navy, physician, educator, uh, also serves as the director of the LGBTI Institute uh, at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Ehrenfeld. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. I do need to make one disclaimer, which is that my uh, views are my own and not that of the Department of Defense. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Uh, and thank you to our panelists for joining us uh, for another week as well. Uh, Nick and Jared are, are my colleagues here sitting in on, on the interview. So thanks for coming, guys. It's great thanks to be back. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Enfield, we, we kind of ended last week talking about education and how we can implement more mm-hmm. of uh, the transgender healthcare side of things into education early on. Um, so, you know, as a medical student, I'm, I'm a second year and, and we haven't really received much up until this point. So what, what sorts of resources can I look at uh, outside of just what you know, what the school provides. If I was curious to learn more, sure, sure. So I think there are a couple places that you can you can look to. One is uh, externally, and then and there's probably places internally. So um, guaranteed uh, at your medical center, there are transgender patients getting care, um, and so um, many places. Um, have a handful of providers that have an interest or some expertise or uh, have accrued a panel of patients. Um, a lot of times what happens is there'll be you know, one primary care provider or one endocrinologist in the community um, that provides care and then suddenly the word gets out um, and they tell their friends and, and, and the trans community is often pretty close-knit and small, particularly in rural parts of the country. Um, and once a provider is, is sort of seen as a safe person, someone who's willing to help, um, they'll often um, be leaned on um, by folks out in the community. And so um, th- that's often the case. Um, that may be the case uh, where you guys are at school. Um, and if you can identify who those people are, you, you may ask if you can um, join them in their clinic to, uh, to work with them to see patients. Um, beyond that, though, there are national resources out there. Um, uh, Fenway Health in Boston has a, a wonderful set of online modules that are freely available through their education center um, that are, um, they've got PowerPoints um, and some cases that go with them that you can review on your own. Um, there are also some materials that are available through um, UCSF. Um, at Vanderbilt, it's not quite ready, um, but we're creating um, a free online um, course um, around LGBT health that we're hoping will be uh, out next year sometime uh, so that providers and students and trainees across the country can also uh, have the opportunity to learn from our experiences here. That's awesome. And, and we'll include all those links um, in the show notes for this episode as well. Uh, we great. should mention that we have faculty here at OUHCOM that are heavily invested in the LGTB community doing research as well. And uh, that is a huge resource. It goes back to what we talked about the last episode where um, when I have questions and I don't know, I pick up the phone and call them. And I say, what am I supposed to do with this? Because I don't have any idea. And that, that's, and, and yeah. We get, we, get, we get calls every day. It used, it used to be a, a few calls a month and then a few calls a week. Now, not a day goes by that our office doesn't get a call from a patient looking for a referral into the system 
uh, or a provider somewhere in the region um, who's looking for resources, advice, uh, or to make a referral. And uh, that's a, a big part of what our program does. Our, our program wasn't designed to replicate services. It was designed to, to partner and connect uh, the community um, to resources that we, we have across the medical center. Yeah, and, and I actually wanted to, to ask you about your program a little bit more. Um, can you talk about who all is part of it? What specialties uh, does that institute kind of contain? So um, the program itself has uh, really tentacles everywhere. And, um, you know, we, we, we were really, really that fortunate. That may not to have... be the right term to use, Jesse. <laughs> I, just, yeah, yeah. That sounds gross. If, if, you wanna, if you want to destigmatize, I'm not sure tentacles is the right word to use. Uh, uh, we, uh, we, uh, we, we have great partnerships uh, across the medical <laughs> it's definitely center. definitely better. Um, both, both across administrative units, um, so admitting, safety and security, um, our, our billing department, um, as well as across clinical services. Um, we have wonderful partnerships in pediatrics, um, internal medicine, um, endocrinology, um, OBGYN, urology, plastic surgery, um, behavioral health, psychology, uh, department of psychiatry. Um, and we make referrals uh, to providers. They work with us, and um, it's it's actually been a, a really great uh, great opportunity to sort of partner uh, with really a, a broad group of folks. Um, we get together um, monthly um, to talk about clinical services and how we can better coordinate care. Um, we're always looking to improve, um, and uh, you know, honestly, just getting people. Uh, in the same room to talk about some of those issues um, was in and of itself a really uh, sort of monumental thing um, because a lot of our providers had referred back and forth patients but but may not have never met um, and, and certainly hadn't sort of thought about how can we better um, sort of organize the care that we're providing. And so the, the program serves kind of that function to bring to bring people together as well so to sort of streamline some of the administrative issues um, that do pop up. Something else that you're involved in is um, being on the board of trustees at the AMA. So I was wondering if, does the program that you're working on now, do you hope to implement something like that nationally, or where do you hope that that goes? Uh, well, being on the, the board of the AMA has been a, a real pleasure and an incredible opportunity for, for me. I'm the first openly gay physician uh, to be elected to serve on the AMA board. Um, and uh, the AMA has a, a long history of supporting um, both um, LGBT physicians as well as LGBT patients, uh, and the AMA has very strong policy, um, you know, supporting um, sort of both groups. And uh, it's been great to be able to sort of work to try to advance kind of where we are um, across the country. And, and I know that that work will continue. Sure. And, and have you worked with the AMA then to try to make any recommendations for transgender healthcare? Uh, we, we certainly have. Um, you know, the AMA is active uh, in a variety of settings, um, particularly uh, when it comes to federal policy around coverage and access. Um, we firmly believe that all patients across our country should have access to care, should have access to high quality, credible coverage for care. We know we're not there yet. Um, and while we um, thought that the Affordable Care Act was a step in the right direction, obviously, uh, we're at sort of a tenuous time as things uh, continue forward with health system reform. Mm -hmm. and, and kind of uh, talking about that tenuous time, a few weeks ago as of recording this, um, the president actually tweeted out that, uh, that transgender soldiers will no longer be allowed to serve in the military, um, citing health care costs. Um, and I believe, uh, to quote, it said that they were a disruption. Um, so I was wondering, what's your opinion on that? Um, how, can we, 
How can we sort of address that issue? Um, so the, the cost of providing care is a red herring, and uh, it, it's, uh, there, there are several cost estimates out there. The RAND Corporation had done a study. There was another study published in the New England Journal, um, I believe in 2014, um, that I believe um, one of the mid-range cost estimates was $0.22 cents per um, service member per month um, when you amortize it out across the force. Um, which is like budget dust, in my opinion. <laughs> Less than um, a quarter. So um, the, the costs, are, their costs are actually not um, really a significant factor. And to be honest, um, we know that when we provide um, transition services and, and behavioral health um, care um, to trans people, that they do better in the long run. In fact, some of the best data to support um, the work that we do to support um, transition from a medical perspective um, is that behavioral health problems get much better downstream. And so you can think of it almost as preventive care. Um, and in some cases, it can be life-saving care. We talked about the suicide problem um, in the first uh, segment of, uh, of this podcast. Um, so when you think about kind of what the overall costs are, um, I, I think it's a distraction and, and not really the issue at hand. And how do you think, I mean, you're, uh, you, like you mentioned before, uh, you serve in the U.S. Navy. So how do you how do you hope to address this issue? You know, as both a service member, a physician, and as someone who is involved in LGBTI health. Well, obviously, um, you know, when I'm uh, putting the uniform on, you know, there are uh, requirements that uh, I'm obligated to follow the orders of those appointed above me, uh, and I certainly plan to to do that. Um, I also have an obligation to my patients uh, to provide the the best care that I can to keep them healthy. Um, and so I hope that uh, the issue is resolved in a positive way. We're still awaiting guidance as of today, and it's not really clear how that issue is ultimately going to uh, sort itself out. Yeah. yeah. And we got to be careful because I'm also going to speak not in my role and my comments are not reflective of anything of the DOD. Um, as a soldier, I'm going to tell you, I had some issues with this because the edict came down that uh, very clearly on retention and recruiting that we would have to address uh, uh, transgender issues. There was no consultation. There was no, hey, this is what's going to happen. And all I could think of was my deployments to Iraq when I had enough issues with MST among female troops integrated into male combatant units, um, thinking, okay, what do I do when I'm on the border of Iran with a transitioning uh, transgender person? Um, as opposed, and, and this this goes back to what we were talking about before, uh, Jesse, is that I think you get a lot. I think this issue becomes a lot more credible when there's a standardization of process instead of the perception that it's kind of the wild west. That you have a transgender or a gender dysphoric patient comes into a family doctor's office and they say, "Well, I know a little something about hormone therapy, so I'm going to start you on it." And all of a sudden, you don't know where you're at with this patient. And if there's a standardized process, for instance, I have several transgender patients that I've dealt with over the years. They're fully transitioned. They are fully identifying with the gender that they've chosen. Those aren't the people I'm worried about. It's, it's the person that gets yeah. deployed that is not complete in their, in their transition, has not lived in their, in their chosen gender for some time and is very stable. Sure. And suddenly now I've got a bigger headache in my mind about how to properly care for that patient downrange. And that guidance was not delivered when the edict came down to integrate. I know because I read it, we were all forced to read it. And so I have wished that there had been more of a standardized process by saying, okay, this service member wants to transition. Um, that's gonna be 
uh, a many month to possibly years process that may take them out of their MOS or may take them out of the military especially, it may not be deployable. Um, how does a unit commander deal with that flux of personnel? Now, admittedly, the number of people that are going to do that is very, very small. But when you're talking about the difficulty of fully filling combat units, one person can make it, especially if they're in a critical MOS, they can make a big difference. And so I wish there had been a more nuanced approach to saying, okay, if we identify a service member that wants to transition, that that puts them into a category of non-deployability, and the, and, the mil- and the DOD will do everything they can to f- backfill for that commander to make sure the operational readiness is not affected, and that that person will not be deployed um, into hostile areas or places they can't be fully supported until they have successfully transitioned that's been validated by behavioral health. Because it's not even the transgender community, and you know this, uh, Jesse, it's people with any BH problems. They unmask when they go to war. And next thing yeah. you know, you got a big problem with evacuation. you got a big problem with how do you take care of them because the military is not designed to support that stuff in general. It's designed to go out and kill people and break things. And so I, I, you laugh, but that's what the mission is, right? And as a new- I, I, wouldn't dis- I wouldn't disagree with that. I, I would say yeah. that um, you know, the, the busiest uh, physician at our combat hospital when I was in Afghanistan in 2014, 2015 was our psychiatrist. Huge, right? Hands down. And, um, you know, a couple of thoughts, you know. And then you afterwards doing anesthesia for all the people coming into the cash, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the the implementation process, um, you know, there are things that I thought were very thoughtful. Um, There are things that probably could have done done better. Um, One issue that I, I would think that would be helpful, particularly for this audience, to recognize, though, is that every transition is unique. Mm-hmm. And so unlike having your appendix out where I can say, here is the expected recovery time when I think you can lift 25 pounds and go back to you know normal duty, um, a transition for patient A versus patient B versus patient C may look very, very different. Um, and so one of the challenges that I think uh, organizations, whether that's the, the DOG or employers, um, uh, are struggling with is really recognizing that, gee, it's it's hard to write, you know, sort of a, an expected protocol for what we need to do to support mm-hmm. somebody uh, in a very specific way that we can for other kinds of medical conditions. Um, I, I do, though, think that, you know, we're in a better situation today where a service member can disclose their identity, can disclose that they may be having challenges, although there's still huge stigma around mental health problems particularly in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there is certainly um, now an avenue that people can can come out as trans, they can come out as having challenges, they can try to access care and get help that they may need to support themselves. Um, and I think that's a much better situation than someone hiding who they are, getting into a, a da- more dangerous, potentially, situation where they, they can't access resources. Um, the, the military does not allow somebody to deploy if they're on a new medication and they haven't been stable on it for typically six months, it, and it depends on exactly what the medication is and those kinds of things. So um, my my understanding of the current state, although who knows where we'll be uh, in the future, um, is that someone who is going through a transition uh, is functionally non-deployable uh, for how long. Um, that clearly the, the guidance isn't explicit because those transitions uh, do vary from, from member to member. But, but by and large, I do think that uh, we made a step forward by enabling people to identify who they are, be more honest, not have to hide, um, and, and get the care that they need to, to function. 
Yeah, I think there's a, that's an area that's ripe for research and for uh, publication, because I tend yep. to look at the, the entire LGTB thing in a spectrum like you've described, that there are people, it's not, it's not binary, as is often presented in the media, that, okay, well, I'm a, a, a female-identifying male, um, and so it's off or on. And I think if that education is put out there, that there's a spectrum of these people, and this is where they fall, and that people focus their research and say, okay, this is best practices. But I don't see a lot of that. And again, when we're enjoined yeah. with um, with edicts to employ something, I, I just give you a quick vignette. The most important person in my unit in Iraq in 2004 was the small generator repair guy. There was one of them in our battalion, and he was the guy that controlled all the air conditioning. And I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> you laugh, but I'm telling you, when yeah. you're on the Iranian border all by yourself, and I mean that guy was that guy was an E5 mid-level non-commissioned officer. He controlled the kingdom. Because if he didn't like you, the plug got pulled on your AC. And, 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 and I mean, literally, I watched him go up against E9s, and he stopped shaving. He did all sorts of crazy stuff, right? He just said, I'm going to live my life because I control the kingdom. You lose a critical person like that, it does have operational implications. And I'm not saying that's the, that was the thought process behind the, the transitions in policy. I'm just saying that from the LGTB community to articulate that in white papers and say, we recognize these things, and we recognize the operational impact, I think that that elevates the conversation to where there's a sensitivity to say, we understand these are concerns. This is a protocol we think that will meet all needs of everybody. And, and so, I, I, yeah. and Jesse, maybe you've seen that in policy on the Navy side. I have not seen that. And that, that's what troubles me is almost a broad sort of approach to the implementation of policy. And so people are confused and they're like, okay, now i got to transition. I don't know what to do. How do I take care of this? Instead of, look, we understand your concerns. These are the way, steps we want you to take. I think that really changes the dialogue. I, that's my feeling. My sure. personal now opinion. I, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and I tell you, I what what has been confusing has been all the tweeting. <laughs> a lot of tweeting. A lot of tweeting going. A lot on. of tweeting from everybody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dr. Info, you know, we yeah. mentioned research, um, and a lot of your work, and, and part of the lecture where I first uh, saw you at the AMA conference was about uh, bioinformatics and using mm -hmm. statistics. So I was wondering, uh, how how does your research then, uh, or how how do you address these issues with that research? Oh, sure. So um, for lots of reasons, it's hard to study LGBT people, um, you know, uh, until relatively recently, uh, being transgender was a blanket exclusion from getting any insurance coverage. And so um, many trans people um, didn't want in their medical record, um, their gender identity, um, and it created some real problems in the provider community from a documentation standpoint. Um, that problem has gotten a little bit better, although we still don't have great documentation in most places. Um, so that then means if you want to do um, retrospective research um, to try to do either epidemiological studies, um, population-based work, um, it becomes really hard because if you don't know who's who, um, you know, it, these studies are hard to do. And so we've been able to apply um, some of our techniques in bioinformatics, natural language processing, um, other kinds of um, algorithms to identify um, patients and categorize them. Um, it's not perfect, uh, but we certainly started to learn some things. Um, and as there's more structured documentation and as providers are more able to ask these kinds of questions about sexual orientation and, and gender identity and, and document those things, um, it will certainly help advance the, the state of the science. And, and what sorts of research do you feel still has to be done? Uh, you know, what sorts of things are we still trying to figure out? 
So we, we know that there are tremendous disparities uh, in how care is provided and in health outcomes for LGBT people. Um, those studies um, are some of the better work that's there. What we don't really know is what to do about that and what are strategies that will keep people healthy and, and how can we support health um, from the provider side as well as from sort of the, the public health preventive um, care side as, as well. And so there's, there's really important work that needs to be done there and it's, I think, really a wide open field. And are there any strategies right now that are on the forefront or that are being tested that you feel may be, uh, may be implemented in the future? Um, so there's great work going on right now around um, disclosure and um, asking these questions. So, you know, a very sort of simple thing is, you know, who should ask about sexual orientation and how often should you ask it and in what context should you ask it? And so, you know, do you ask it of every patient on every visit? Um, those things may change um, over time. It's not like your age. Um, and so um, there's some work being done at, at Hopkins and other places looking in different settings of care, at different provider groups trying to sort of get at the sort of very fundamental question about, you know, how do you ask these questions? Um, what makes people um, willing to share that information? In what context um, do you offend people when you ask these questions? And there's um, a great study done at four community health centers. One was in a very rural place, um, Buford, South Carolina, um, not an LGBT based community um, health center and they asked everybody about their sexual orientation and and gender identity and and they really wanted to know is grandma going to get upset that she has to ask her if she's a trans woman um and it turns out that by and large people don't care um but there's still some subtleties that um, are working to be addressed well that, that's that's great and i think that that hopefully is, is where we move to in the future um but i did want to open up to the panel here uh, at this point if you guys have any questions or comments it's <laughs> <laughs> crickets yeah. just soaking it all in yeah, yeah it's a lot of information uh it sounds very challenging but uh yeah it, it, dr Anfield, have you guys been able has the program been in existence long enough to do longitudinal studies on the population you've treated to look at outcomes um so we have a couple things in the works mm -hmm. um we have um, some quality of care metrics that we're starting to track um and through our transgender specific patient navigator program, um, we've been collecting case forms when patients um, are getting care through the system. We, we don't have results of that work right now, um, but we are uh, certainly uh, looking to do um, some of that kind of thing in the future. Mm -hmm. I, so I was curious, um, what role do you think legislation plays in advancing or improving these outcomes? Do you think that that would improve outcomes or do you think that getting that policy side involved would actually hinder progress? Uh, I think it's actually an important step. We, we know that when people don't have access to insurance, when they don't have access to care, that they live sicker and die earlier. And uh, unfortunately, um, LGBT people continue to be underinsured, continue to struggle to access care. And, and those are things that can be solved um, and, and there can be um, important work done at a, at a policy level. And uh, unfortunately, we're not quite where we need to be. Excellent. Well, uh, I think that, that's all the questions I had prepared. Unless anyone has any other. Oh questions no, I got more. All right, let's hear <laughs> this is this is coming from this is coming from the 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 um, traditional GP. So, gender. Okay. So one mm -hmm. of my colleagues told me that 
what are there? He's hey, this has got to be crazy. But he said there's like 80 different gender identities now. What, what, does that? What does that mean? Can you define that? Because we hear this stuff as rank and file GPs, and we're like, I don't even know how to get my head around that. What what is that? What does that mean? So can you define that for us? You know, there are different words that people use, right? So um, something that you might hear, and we haven't really talked about in um, this conversation yet, is this concept of um, fluidity, um, the idea of being gender fluid, gender queer, somebody who rejects the binary. Um, and, and there are a lot of different words that, that people may use to sort of describe kind of where they are and how they identify themselves. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about the language. I think the concept um, of um, gender identity uh, not being congruent with birth sex um, and then this concept of fluidity um, are really the key takeaways. And then, you know, language changes, it evolves, it depends on what country you live in and what part of the U.S. Um, and again, if a patient uses a word that you don't know what it means, just ask them. What sorts of language should, should we avoid? You know, you don't want to offend someone, but especially if we don't know too much about, you know, this field, I've, you know, I'm always worried about saying the wrong thing. So what sorts of things should we avoid? Um, I wouldn't refer to someone as a transgender, just as I wouldn't refer to myself as a homosexual, um, transgender person, transgender patient. Um, you always want to use the person's preferred name and preferred pronouns. Um, you don't ever want to refer to a trans woman as a male. Um, and I still see notes and records and clinical documentation where, where people misgender a patient. Um, and remember that patients now have access to their records. Um, and they, they do, in fact, read their records and, and they'll request that. Um, and so you want to make sure that you're you know, using the, the right words and pronouns and, and language. Um, and those are the, the main things that I would say are, are key to keep in mind. So here's, a, here's another uh, GP-related question. So the, it, it seems, at least from the literature I've read, that the highest incidence of new HIV cases is now occurring in young homosexuals in the United States. Is that, is that true? Or is, and, and why is that? What's, what's going on that we're seeing this incidence of HIV increasing in that community? So it's a really important question, yeah. um, the disparities in HIV. So the lifetime risk of HIV transmission is the highest in men who have sex with men. It's one in six. The next highest group is um, women IV drug users. Um, that's one in 23. Within men who have sex with men, that group, so again, I told you it was one in six, the highest rate of a lifetime diagnosis of HIV is in African-American men who have sex with men, where the rate, the lifetime um, risk of having an HIV diagnosis is now one in two. That's insane. Um, and That's um, crazy. that is a tragedy. Yeah. Um, and we, we don't really understand um, why that's happening. Um, we know that it continues to be uh, a real challenge and there is active work being done to try to look at preventive strategies, um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, uh, education, um, lots of things that people are out trying, um, but we really don't uh, understand why that's being uh, the way it is. Wow, that's, uh, that's just frightening. Um, and I have this conversation with college students here because um, you know, with sexual identity 
you know, there's a certain fluidity to that for a lot of people. And I have heterosexual patients come in that want to be screened for GC, and they are having anonymous sexual contacts. And I try to explain to them, you know, there are people who are going in and out of uh, communities that have a much higher risk of HIV. We should we should test you. And that shocks them sometimes to say, yeah. I should screen you. And uh, the, <clears throat> what is being done in your from your expertise to raise awareness about that? Because it's, I, just so you know, my background, I grew up in California, and I remember, um, you know, Randy Schultz's book, The Band Played On. I, I, I was there when they closed the bathhouses in San Francisco. I wasn't in San Francisco, but I was in California. So it was yeah. very much at the forefront of everything that was going on. I had a college professor that died from complications of AIDS, a wonderful teacher that I had. And so it's very sensitive to me not to see that sort of weird bimodal curve now where all of a sudden we're going to lose yeah. a lot of young people over something that we learned a generation ago about how not to die from. And I don't know where you guys are going with that or how that gets changed. Well, certainly um, there is tremendous stigma around HIV and HIV testing and awareness that as a country we have not yet surmounted. Um, the CDC recommendations around universal testing um, still are not accepted, um, I think, broadly by um, patients, uh, regardless of what community you're, you're looking at, mm -hmm. um, that everyone should have had, should have an HIV test at some point. Um, and then obviously for high risk groups, that testing should be more, more frequent. Um, testing is, is I think, uh, a key part of the prevention strategy, mm -hmm. um, getting people into treatment, into therapy, getting their viral load to be undetectable so that they're not transmissible um, is one strategy that's being actively um, pushed um, by a lot of the advocacy organizations. Um, I don't know what the right answer is, but clearly uh, we, we have a lot of work to be, to be done there. Uh, and I do have one last question, and that is, it kind of goes back, and I'm not sure we completely clarified it. Are you guys working specifically at the national level to to create maybe centers of excellence for the care and treatment of LGBT uh, patients so that it can be modeled in other parts of the country so that uh, a, a community that doesn't understand how to, how to yeah. do best practices can actually resource that? And if so, for people who may be listening that are, have an interest in this, where do they resource that to understand how to put those programs Great. together? Great question. That's actually one of the reasons I was excited to come to Nashville. Um, you know, I, I, I worked in Boston um, for a number of years. That's where I did my residency and fellowship and whatnot before I came to, to Tennessee. And the needs uh, and the opportunities were so much greater in the Southeast uh, than in the Northeast, where there are resources, there are community centers, there are programs. Um, and so Vanderbilt is um, really been at the forefront in the Southeast and trying to create our program. And um, we have helped several other centers create similar kinds of things. And we hope that there will be uh, growing opportunities for, for places like that to start um, across the country. Obviously, you're articulate. And what I like about you most is you seem to be very objective in your approach to this. And, and that's what people need, because yeah. there are ton, there's tons of polarization. And I hate stigmatization when it's, when it's stigmatizing people who are just maybe worried or concerned as opposed to having an open dialogue and saying, look, yeah. this is where it's at. So I hope maybe you might consider as we develop other questions, maybe coming back and visiting with us again. It'd be a pleasure. Anytime. That's awesome. Thank you so much.
Okay, uh, this is, wraps up another episode of Rotations. We want to give a great thanks to Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld, a very thoughtful and, and uh, articulate uh, professional who's uh, working within the LGTB community. Again, if you have any questions or concerns uh, or comments, uh, make them non-pejorative, make them non-insulting, and just come in and just say, hey, I just didn't know about this. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll script out another episode. We'll bring Dr. Ehrenfeld on again, and he can answer those difficult questions. I'm sure he's up to the challenge. You can get us at, uh, at, at Rotations PCAST on Twitter. You can go to mediamedicine.com and put rotations in the subject line and just uh, send us a, a comment, or you can go to rotations at gmail. Rotationspodcast rotations, at gmail.com. Rotationspodcast at gmail.com, and that'll finish up for us this week. Yeah, Thank you for tuning in. Yeah, thanks, you guys, for coming. Thank you, Dr. Enfield. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communication. The guests on Rotation are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Ryan Schropp, Mara Leindecker, and Ryan Bagetis. Produced by Todd Fredericks, engineered by Kyle Snyder, and edited by Brian Plough. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediainmedicine.com slash rotations. <laughs>